Mildred. A name gasped in the night. The one last word of a dying man. But one word that tells a thousand stories of a woman who left her mark on every man she met. Mildred had more to offer a man in a glance than most women give in a lifetime. Mildred knew what she wanted. It wasn't too particular how she got it. Mildred? Loving her was like shaking hands with the devil. Well, I, uh, I wonder why you brought me here tonight. I mean, all of a sudden, boom. Husband gone, soft lights, quiet room, opportunity. You make me feel, oh, I don't know, warm. And wanted. How long has this been going on? Monty's going to divorce you and marry me. And there's nothing you can do about it. You think because you've made a little money, you can get yourself a new hair doing some expensive clothes and turn yourself into a lady. But you can't. Because you'll never be anything but a common... F Hello, this is Lee Gambon, and welcome to The Locust Files. Today, we have the wonderful Pamela Hutchinson joining us, and I can't wait to chat with her. Just a bit of a brief background on Pamela's work. Pamela Hutchinson is a freelance writer, critic, and film historian. She contributes regularly to publications including The Guardian and Sight and & Sound, as well as editing silent cinema website Silence London. She's a member of Fipreski and the London Films Critics Circle, and has been working full-time as a journalist since 2001. After 12 years on staff at The Guardian, she went freelance in the summer of 2016. Her publications include a monograph on Pandora's Box, published in November 2017 as part of the BFI Film Classic series, and 30 Second Cinema, published in, two, in March 2019. She has contributed chapters to several more edited collections. She produces the weekly film bulletin for Sight and & Sound and also writes for The Guardian, Sight & Sound, The Criterion Collection, The Financial Times, Tortoise Empire, Little White Lies, The BFI and more. Also writing booklet essays for DVD and Blu-ray releases from The Criterion Collection, Indicator, The Arrow Academy, BFI, Artificial Eye and Eureka's Masters of Cinema. Her interests of air, sorry, her areas of interest and research include silent and classic cinema, women's film history, Hollywood, and stardom. She is a guest lecturer at the National Film and Television School and is a member of Women and Film History International. Currently, she's researching film star graves and mem and memorials, which is exciting to talk about. We'll get to that in a second. But hi, Pamela! It's such an honour to have you here on this podcast. Hello, Lee. It's, it's an honour to be here or to be in London talking to you. Uh, yeah, I mean, you made me sound really fancy there. You are fancy. Be proud. <laughs> it's, it's good to be fancy. Um, it's it funny. 
It's like, yeah, we're across continent. We tried to record this just seconds ago and we had tech issues, but we're all in the clear now. So that's good. It's all good to go. Um, It's funny, um, Pamela, just how our community works, Um, this sort of film writing, film historian, you know, critic, home media and community that we've got going where we find ourselves connected um inadvertently i guess when we're re- when we're on releases the same releases and it's so cool because we've been on a couple together um the um ones that i that come to mind um are the indicator releases of berserk the wonderful joan crawford horror film from 1967 and the bob fossey release of sweet charity the sweet re- release of sweet charity from bob fossey which is coming up as well which is going to be a stunning beautiful release as well so it's really cool that kind of you know, um, uh, the way this community works, it, put, it puts people together and connects them in such a positive light with them being involved with these awesome movies. And that's something that I think we should both be really proud of and revel in, I think. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, the home video thing is just a great explosion. The care that people take over these these presentations, it's such, it's such a joy to be part of. I'm sure you have the same thing as me when you get the email saying, we're putting this together, would you like to contribute and you think, yes, and then I'd like to buy three copies. <laughs> exactly. And it's interesting to, to stay on that topic of home media because it's so vitally important forever. But right at this moment in time with this whole horrible, you know, um, COVID-19 situation going on, um, there's really, you know, no better time than to obviously be at home um, and watch these films because a lot of the stuff that we've both invested a lot of our work and time in, which is rep screenings, um, you know, at public spaces like cinemas and theatres, is on hold at the moment. Can you talk a bit about that? Because I know that um, in London there's a big, very healthy, um, silent movie um, uh, world that goes on there, like a rep sort of um, situation there with silent movies, which I'd love to hear more about and how that's been put on hold because of this situation at hand and how home media has actually played a role in helping people out there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy, actually. I mean, I'm so delighted and thrilled and proud of the, the rep scene in London. It, it's amazing. And there is a particularly strong silent film scene. And I think it's been getting stronger over the last um, 10 years. You know, we have the concert halls, we have the big rep uh, cinemas like the BFI Southbank and the Barbican, and we also have smaller sort of homegrown kind of collectives putting things on in the cinema museum and so on. So there's a lot going on. And, and that's kind of why I end up talking to you. You know, everything has brought me to this point, having this conversation with you, Lee, mm. um, starts with the silent film scene in London. And because I was a silent film fan, I've been a silent movie fan since I was a teenager, really. I used to go to see silent films with live music as just a, a fun thing to do. And, you know, I began to increasingly realise that there were more screenings happening than I could keep up with that I knew about. I remember I, I found out that one of my favourite Icelandic bands had scored a silent film in a cool venue in East London just like a day before and I'd missed it. So at the end of 2010, I set up a website called Silent London, basically just to to contain the listings. I was going to compile the listings every week for what silent films were playing with live mm. music in the capital. And I think I'm try- trying to remember exactly how long I stuck with doing the listings, maybe till like 2014, 2015, before I dropped that. And it's just more of a traditional silent film blog now. But it was because of writing that that, people started asking me to drive for other places and I started writing for Sight and Sound and so forth and that's when I went from being a sort of a copy editor, I think you call it, a sub-editor in The Guardian to being a freelance film critic as well and film historian, I guess. So thank God for all those silent movie screenings. Amazing. Did you start off writing sort of freeform essays before your blog though? Like were you writing on film just for fun, just for kicks? 
absolutely not in no right, way right um so my first job out of university i actually worked on funnily enough everything seems circular when you think about it uh dvd magazines like the kind of techie ones mm-hmm. so they had the reviews of the players and also the reviews of the dvds and i did write for that um but then I went and worked at the newspaper and, you know, the idea of getting into film criticism or film history writing just seemed so far away. I'd done my MA, I'd given one paper at a conference and I thought that world just sort of closed to me for various reasons. Um, I wouldn't have had the sort of nerve to put anything out there. The, the, the listings were my way of starting a silent film blog without starting a blog that would be, you know, Pam's thoughts. Right. <laughs> right. Just, just not that kind of person. Yeah. But it did become that. Amazing. So you started your relationship with Solid Cinema as a teenager. Um, do you remember the first films you saw um, and how you saw them? Well, the very first silent so I mean, people sort of expect a slightly more romantic story than this, but the very first silent film I saw was in a film studies A-level classroom. Um, we were studying David Lynch. So they said, let's have an example of surrealism, earlier example of film surrealism. So the first silent movie I ever saw was Shen Andalou. And, I mean, it blew my mind mm-hmm. in good ways and bad ways. I mean, I found it, like, quite repulsive, that first famous scene <laughs> everyone here, I'm sure, will know the, the scene I mean with the eye slicing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it intrigued me a lot. Um, I had spent most of my teenage years living somewhere that wasn't close to a cinema, and I'd slowly been getting interested in film, but I sort of knew that, I'm sure a lot of people feel this way, that there were all the mainstream films that people talked about that they said you must watch and they weren't always the films for me and I knew I was going to find a little area of film that was going to really speak to me mm. and quite rapidly I realised that silent cinema particularly early cinema was was the area that just intrigued me the most mm-hmm. so that's when I started going to the silent film screenings in London basically I'd go to anything almost completely indiscriminately I wouldn't make a difference in my head between it being a big Charlie Chaplin screening or it being some obscure French early films that I'd never heard of and I just sort of got slowly more and more addicted. Amazing I've got a double loaded question here for you now because I want to tap into Pamela as a kid because what did you what did you grow up watching what were you um sort of uh, what did you gravitate towards what what was the sort of go-to film experience for you as a child um prior to going into school and you know um studying film and obviously you know learning about David Lynch and then going back to expressionist cinema and then finding your your heart with romance um your romance with um silent film and also secondly um as the sort of double-edged um question here what was it about silent cinema? Because silent cinema isn't a genre. So I mean, most people yeah. talk. Most people talk about what they fall in love with, with say musicals or westerns or horror films. It's a genre, sort of an umbrella genre that will sort of pack in a whole bunch of varied types of film, musicals and um, westerns and horror films, etc. But silent film is just a start. Is you know, it's a style. It's a it's a period. Sorry, like it's an era of cinema. But it's you know, it's a mixed bag of a whole bunch of different things. So you know, comedy and mu- and obviously not musical comedy and. and and Western and horror, etc., uh, melodrama. But what was it about silent film that really appealed? And yeah, what was the gateway? Was it Lynch? So yeah, that's that's actually three loaded questions. Oh my god! Let's so, try David Lynch into this. So I had you know, <laughs> David Lynch uh, and my childhood. Let's discuss. No, yeah. no, no, no. So um, <laughs> I, 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 absolutely idyllic childhood, and I was a big bookworm. I read a lot of books, and my parents were really into books. And mm. um, film just wasn't really a thing that was on our radar like we weren't big movie buffs we didn't go to the cinema a lot we didn't have 
films on video or anything like that, which is just fine. That just wasn't really a thing. When I look back, I can see that I was getting completely obsessed with cinema in lots of ways. I remember very vividly certain, this is going to sound very nerdy, but certain stories on the news or on arts programmes on the TV about film stars, when they, classic film stars when they died. I'm pretty sure I remember Lillian Gish dying. I remember a lot of stuff about Sam Fuller. And I remember any time anything like that came on, it was like suddenly all my attention i was just completely obsessed with i found it just really diverting and fascinating so i was clearly like going to be a film nerd i just didn't even know that that was really a thing mm-hmm. the, i used to watch films you know in the afternoons and on school holidays you know with my mum. and i remember the first time i, I watched a film and i thought oh, wow cinema i see what film is i see that the images are telling the story was um a typical for a bookworm, it was David Lean's Great Expectations. Right. I hadn't read the story because I was still quite young, but I had um, but the the scene, you know, across the graveyard on the moor with the mist, and I just realised mm. that there was more to this film business than just having the characters come on and say the lines that they said in the novel. And mm-hmm. um, I think that that's when I kind of, you know, began to realise there was something more exciting here. I watched a lot of films, but, you know, I'm still really interested in literary adaptation, just like I was when I was a kid. Um, but, yeah, there's, that's why it went. And then, you know, I didn't go to the cinema that much when I was a teenager because distance. I know, because I didn't grow up in London, I should make that clear. Right. <laughs> um, I wasn't just lazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the film thing was beginning to be more and more an interest, which is why I did film studies A-level. And I do like David Lynch. I mean, I remember seeing The Elephant Man when I was quite young and thinking this was this was definitely good stuff, you know. Um, but I wouldn't really blame David Lynch for me being a silent film nerd. What, um, what it was with silent film, I think I was reading a lot of magazines, film magazines and that when I was a teenager and listening to critics on the radio and so forth. And there were a certain set of movies that you always had to watch. They said were the must-sees. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these films were great, and I love them. And a lot of them I found just not very appealing to me. And sometimes I found that these films were quite sexist or quite difficult to watch as a teenage girl, you know? And, you know, I could see the benefits in those films. I could see what was good about them. But I realised I was going to have to find something that was more interesting to me and not just what other people told me were the hits I had to watch. Mm-hmm. And it's when I started looking at silent film, as you say, it's not a genre, not a genre at all. It's not even a style. I began to realise that there was so much film that you could look at that it felt like other people weren't talking about. And it felt like, or they weren't talking about as much, they weren't over talking about. And also, when I thought about what it might be like to go to a cinema or whatever venue to watch these films, I felt like there was still an air of mystery there. You know, someone could tell me the story about how Jaws invented the blockbuster a hundred times and it never felt like history. It just mm. felt like something quite immediate. Mm-hmm. Um, no shade on Jaws. No. <laughs> but I think I was attracted to the mystery. I'm always quite attracted to things that are a bit tricky. Um, and, and yeah, so I think that just silent film just made me just, every time I would watch something, I think, well, that's completely different to this other film. Or they're trying something that you didn't see in the other film. Yeah. And I was constantly asking questions rather than thinking, aha, the great genius who's made this. We know he always has shots like this. <laughs> Amazing. I like what you said earlier just then with um, the idea of it kind of being a movement that was kind of unsung. It was something that was kind of underplayed in the history of film or, you know, in film scholarship or learning about cinema, which just surprises me and dumbfounds me. I'm glad that someone like um, Jacqueline 
um, from TCM is a massive champion of um, silent film and a scholar on silent cinema. And she says, you know, if you want to understand sound cinema, you really need to go back and look at silent cinema or cinema in general. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is really important. Jacqueline Stewart, that's right. Um, just really important. And just I love that you talk about something like as lyrical as um, Great Expectations because that is that film is loaded with kind of really beautiful poetic imagery that borrows and lends from silent film, absolutely. Um, you know, those lingering shots and, you know, those great captivating images of, you know, the wood, the, the, the forestry and her and her wedding dress, etc. But it's, it's, it's one of those things that kind of ties in with stuff that would become formative. Like, so you, you'll go back and forth towards um, images on screen and will relate it to stuff that's closer to your heart. So the, even the elephant man sort of standing out for you, that film, you know, the, <laughs> the opening sequence, you know, with the elephant stampede and his mother, etc. Incredible stuff, which is so silent cinema, you know, influenced. But that's really cool. So with the, with the blog, that... Um, did that open you up to sort of searching for um, more films to sort of source and research and find? Um, and also, did you have filmmakers in particular that you sort of followed and were interested in or stars? Um, you mentioned talking about, you, you know, being kind of having a, 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 would you call it a morbid interest in people passing away and stuff like that? Or just this kind of, this sort of being captivated by the whole idea, the mystique of Hollywood and the mystique of, you know, people and um, what they represent pre and post them dying and their work after they've died, etc. But did you find yourself kind of um, going on different sort of pathways into your scholarship and your research into silent movies? Well, I mean, the, the blog was interesting i mean you know you could call me naive you could call me foolish i mean i wouldn't say let's call these some names but i just started the blog thinking i will have the listings and it'll be a public service i won't put my name on it i might put the occasional like nice picture of ivan novello on there so that people will go back to the website i really it was very naive and of course the first thing you notice is that i started a like a little twitter account to go with it and i was talking to people about silent movies online and one of the first things that i realized well someone actually outed me put my name out there anyway but also um people really liked opinions people wanted to know what you thought of stuff plus also there were filmmakers that i hadn't perhaps been particularly focusing on that were the only filmmakers that people wanted to talk about so every every day i felt like i had a tweet from someone asking me out my opinion on a different buster keaton film mm. and i love buster keaton but I, i'm someone who wrote my ma dissertation on early adaptations of Shakespeare from, mm-hmm. you know, the, the 1900s and teens. So I was like, why are you asking me? But, you know, one of the lovely things about Silent London, you know, because it, once I did start writing things on there, people wanted reviews of books and museums and things. I was, it was an excuse to go deep on lots of other things that I liked, things that I already loved. I was working on Silent Shakespeare just this year, in fact, but um, to just shamelessly have some fun watching lots of Buster Keaton films and read about that and explore that. So I do feel like this is quite a passive way to put myself out there as a film scholar, but basically if people were interested in something, I went to find out more about it. My interests were quite niche, I think. Right. (laughs) But, you know, people saw Silent Film Blog and they thought, this woman is going to be going to tell me everything I need to know about Charlie Chaplin. Right. And so they asked, or D.W. Griffiths, yes, there was a lot of Birth of a Nation chat in the early days. (laughs) Okay. Wow, that's interesting. So yeah, because you would, you, you, they're assuming that you'd have this broad 
vast interest, not just the knowledge, but the interest in all this other stuff that's going on in, in silent film. But one of your main focal points in research and scholarship is women directors, which is an incredible, um, you know, legacy. Um, there's so many of them. And that's what people sort of fail to understand and realise, which is such a shame. But that's, you know, I guess comes in a long line of women being sort of, you know, swept under the carpet and ignored and neglected in this realm. And it goes on um, throughout the years. But can you talk us through that and some of your favourites? Because, yeah, I mean, my God, like what an amazing, impressive list. And also not just directors. I feel like there's a bit of a honus on women directors as a such, but, you know, that that's the most vitally important role in film. But so many wonderful women writers and editors and, you know, um, co-directing works and stuff like that and dramaturging screenplays and all this sort of, you know, behind-the-scenes stuff that went on and also stars um, you mentioned Lillian Gish and stuff. They were like, you know, powerful players in this period, you know, the formation of cinema. So can you talk us through how you got interested in that? Was that something that kind of stemmed from being, you know, a teenage girl wanting to find a reference point? Because <laughs> you mentioned earlier, you, 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 your, ears prick, your ears pricked up at sexist movies. So did you, did you want to find an anecdote to that? <laughs> I mean, you know... <laughs> it was a flippant answer, you know. Some guy on the radio told me I had to watch Straw Dogs, and I watched Straw Dogs, <laughs> and I decided to get into silent cinema instead. Do you know what I mean? Um, right. You know, Straw Dogs has got lots to recommend it, but you can imagine why it's not—it's not the film you want to see to tell you everything about this art form you love when you're a teenager, necessarily. As a teenage girl, I mean, and um, yeah. So, I mean, the simple fact is that I'm a feminist, and the simple fact is that when I looked at silent films, I mean, the silent film era predates the auteur theory which isn't why i like it it's just a nice bonus if mm. you know what i mean and mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and so i look you can look at a mary pickford film and the fact that she's not behind the camera doesn't mean that it isn't a mary pickford film mm-hmm. entirely in every way so i think there's like two different strands there were lots of female film directors in the silent era and i'm passionate about telling people about them mm-hmm. and i've got to the point now where i've heard people quoting stuff I've read in The Guardian back at me at parties saying, did you know? Ah, that's great. <laughs> Which is great. Um, but, you know, also, I want to stand up for all the other women who are doing creative work in the silent film era. And just because we focus on directors, mm-hmm. we sort of don't really truly understand the history, the, the silent film history. So, you know, a writer, a producer, you know, these, or a star can have just as much power as a director, especially in the days before these roles weren't entirely codified, you know? It took a while for people to work out that the director was the boss, and so the director should be a man. You know, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so so it, it sort of goes in two strands. I mean, for example, I've been so delighted that the films of Alice Key, Alice Key Plachet, or Alice Key, depending on how you call her, and Lois Weber have been much more available recently. For years, I was thinking, oh, this is so fascinating, and reading about them, and only seeing a few little snippets. They're not being shown too often at the festivals and things. So that is now getting to the point where these films are out there and there are documentaries and people are talking about them. And it feels a little bit like I can just sort of stretch out in a warm bath and just enjoy the fact that people have seen the films and have seen them not just entirely, hopefully, as this one time I saw a silent film directed by a woman. They're looking at them as their own films. I still get the questions about, you know, who is the female equivalent to so-and-so and and who is the female equivalent to such-and-such. But I think we're beginning to realise that these people were their own artists in their own right. Mm-hmm, and absolutely. with their own contradictions and flaws and greatnesses and 
achievements. And if all else fails, Lee, I just show people suspense and it just shuts them up for a bit. <laughs> Fantastic. One thing that I really enjoy about like people like Dorothy um, Devonport and um, you mentioned Lois Weber, was that they did a lot of films which, with ha- which had social commentary and really tackled kind of taboo subject matter, you know, from the get-go. I'm just at the moment wrapping up a book all about very special episodes and television sitcoms, right? So my brain is all 70s and 80s generally with this bloody book. <laughs> but to, to think these incredible filmmakers tackled this stuff in a cinematic um, format... Um, because the sitcom um, Very Special Episode comes from a combination of things and one of them is the social message film that people kind of think of as a 50s tool when it's not, it's earlier than that. Um, and it's, you know, a lot of them spearheaded by people like Weber, etc. you know, abortion and um, poverty and a whole bunch of um, uh, issues that these women raise in these movies, um, prostitution, etc. domestic violence, all this stuff. So that's something that I think is really amazing. And that's, I mean, that's across the board on women and men directors, of course. But I just think there's a fascinating linkage between, say, these amazing pioneer women and, say, if you go into, the say, the TV movie realm of the 70s where, you know, most of the audiences were women at home um, and these movies about abortion or eating disorders or domestic violence or gambling addiction or whatever it is really tapped into the home. So it's kind of like this nice lineage, this sort of interesting trajectory of, of um, uh, socially aware films or, you know, topic-based or um, topic-centric, um, topical films being kind of a very much a woman's domain. I think that's really interesting. I don't know, it's fascinating. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you make that link because it was sort of in the 1970s that feminist film scholars started rediscovering some of these silent era directors. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, Lois Weber is the clearest example of this, and she really had this idea that film was a universal language, film was a tool she could use, and therefore she was going to use film to make the world a better place. And she, out, out and out, you know, she's a, she's a woman, she was a committed Christian, she was in a male world, more or less, you know, in... in whether it's in missionary work or cinema, you know, that's true. And she had a very serious aim for her films, whether she was calling out Christian hypocrisy or whether she was looking at how um, women are low paid or she was making her own spin on the kind of white slavery films. There were so many films about the, the, the danger that young women would fall into prostitution if they in cities. And she sort of made those films in a slightly more sophisticated way, mm-hmm. you know, this is just something that she really, really thought was important to do with cinema. And I I understand that it's not quite so fashionable, you know, now. But I think that, as you say, people have always wanted this kind of filmmaking. And again, it's interesting that you make that comparison with the TV movies, because obviously the, um, the movie audience in the 1920s was largely female. And mm-hmm. there was an awful lot of this idea of... of film being something particularly all these stories about the film being something that housewives like that you'll get a big crowd on laundry day and all this kind of thing and now of course we talk about film so much as if it's something that is made by men for men and sometimes women might get a look in and that's not the case at all in the period that i'm looking at mm-hmm. it's a very feminine domain in many ways and i think that you know we probably do this about lots of things if you talk about the swinging 60s or something you talk about the roaring 20s and we think of comedy and we think of flappers we think of a world of glamour and you know that's not the life that a lot of people were leading you know obviously people have always liked escapism but there is something really powerful the need to see films that comment on the world we live in we as you say right up until the present day with you know sitcoms even do it but obviously i mean in this country uh, we have 
Ken Loach and people like that making message films and uh, well, quite a lot of contemporary American cinema is a, a lot of social commentary as well. And, you know, people have a lot to say about the world they live in. They don't just want to tell stories that are entirely codified by what you might call dramatic genres. And I think it's really exciting to look at someone like Lois Weber as someone who tells us much more about the 1920s than the mainstream Hollywood filmmakers do. Absolutely. And also um, tells it in such a distinct style as well. She's such a, she has such an amazing visual flair. And you mentioned suspense. Um, that was, what's that? That's like 1913, 14? Was it like it's very early? Um, and okay. that. And- suspense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 1913. 13, yeah. And that, for memory, has split screen and stuff. And that, that sort of starts to inform people, um, like the films such as um, General Died at Dawn, um, which I worked on the commentary for for Kino Lorber recently, and that has a shot-by-shot exact same replica there. And also the director, Henry Hathaway, of films like Spawn of the North, noted Lois Weber as one of his, you know, idols and someone that really influenced him as far as his visuals went and the way he's told stories. Um, so she was really innovative in, in that regard as well, the whole idea of, you know, how to tell stories um, and matching the sort of, um, you know, introspective sort of stuff that was going on on screen or the social message- messages or the acute commentary on what was going on with a visual style that kind of complemented it. So I, I, that's that's something that's really you know, influenced a whole lot of people in the way they tell stories. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because often when we talk about the development of cinema, so sort of this period, we talk a lot about the development, and, you know, I've, I've written this piece, I'm sure, you know, yeah. the development of editing. And, I mean, Lois Weber's command of editing is perfect, um, but that's not the focus in her filmmaking. Her focus is always on the frame. And to the extent where she does extreme things like split screen in suspense, which is just an amazing way to show us uh, this kind of, this kind of, uh, what's what you've got, you've got a home invasion story, basically not to get into the whole plot, but it's a home invasion story and someone's rushing to the rescue. So you've got the tramp outside the house trying to get in, the mother with the baby inside, and you've got the husband trying to get there from far away. So you've got these three spaces and she uses them all in the frame at once, as well as editing. But she also has compositions where you're invited to look at lots of details, often quite unpleasant details within the frame, which a lot of people have not enjoyed in her work but it's quite refreshing it's interesting to think of someone who's thinking that you're going to just look carefully at what's in front of you it's not about the time it's not about pushing on with the narrative it's about really looking at the world around you i was lucky enough recently to be writing about lois weber i'll be honest about why i'm sort of so focused on it right now writing about her in a book that's coming out at the end of this year i think um which is about shoes on film. Oh, fantastic. And she obviously, she obviously wrote, uh, made, sorry, a film called Shoes, but also she uses some of the, the shoe-based plot in that film in a later film called The Blot. And it's interesting reading reviews of that film where they find it disgusting that she focuses on broken down shoes and splinters <laughs> in feet. But that's the entire point of what she wants you to look at. And, you know, just because something's not easy to look at, she still wants us to sort of focus on it. And when you think about what film often does, it often makes us look away from those things or it can kind of glamorise or aestheticise certain problems, even quite extreme problems like um, murder. Mm, mm. <laughs> to really focus on something as seemingly small and insignificant as someone's um, poverty as represented by their broken down shoes mm. is quite a radical act. I mean, let alone, of course, the fact that we're sort of haven't even mentioned the fact that she almost always focuses on what you would call the, male, the female gaze in her films. 
So yeah, I mean, I find it just really exciting to think about these filmmakers. I'm sort of overdoing the piece about how many of them there were, and I want to start looking more detail about what these women did and what was so special about their films, because the reason they got asked to make films again and again, got hired, was, you know, very much not because they were women. It was because the films were great. That's right. They did a good job. Um, so you're talking about, like, um, not focusing on things that are, you know, sorry, take, uh, Lois Weber would be someone who would focus on stuff that was sort of gritty or um, really earthy and realist and not sort of painting it over with a glo- uh, glossy glamour. And one of the lost films, I believe, is all about addiction, The Devil's Brew or Hop the Devil's Brew. Yeah. I'm, yeah, like, and that's all about, like, opium smuggling. Like, so this is something that's, like, really, you know, head on into that kind of, um, that world, that realm of, um, you know, drug addiction and drug dealing, etc. So that's something that, you know, is an extension of what you're saying there with, you know, focusing in on, honing in on, you know, broken down shoes. This is broken down people who are addicts. Yeah. So this is, some, this is someone who didn't, you know, shy away from these, these issues or these concerns. Yeah, she, it's very confrontational in a way. There's a film of hers that was um, recently restored and showed at Bologna uh, called Sensation Seekers. And it's a 1920s film with a title like that. And you almost think, oh, I know what's going to happen. And right. no, um, the Sensation Seekers are shown to be a bit frivolous. And the lead Sensation Seeker decides to, well, has to has to make a choice, really, about whether she's going to carry on partying and being irresponsible, whether she's going to become a better person and settle down and it's just like it's almost the opposite of what you want from a Hollywood movie you want someone who's going off and doing glamorous things that you can see and be exciting but she's sort of saying no but look at the consequences it's very confrontational people have called a conservative I think probably was um but I I like the sort of awkwardness of it you know that's not she wasn't swimming with the mainstream and you know, increasingly, a lot of these female directors found that they weren't swimming with the mainstream, and that's why there aren't so many, shall we say. There are hardly any in the 30s. The 20s was the last sort of... The early 20s was the last hurrah for the female filmmaker. Mm, I love what you mentioned, how you don't want to focus on the the the, the number of women making films, but why they were. Um, mm. What what do you, do you feel there's a lot of talk about how many people, how many women there were in the 20s and this whole idea of, oh, there were so many women, blah, blah, blah. And there was, do you feel like that's something that's kind of a little bit missing the point? Or... It's not so much that it's missing the point. It's just that I feel like we've, we've said this. We've said, look at all the numbers. Look how amazing. And, right. But now we're lucky enough that we've got, I think I can think of three recent box sets, DVD and Blu-ray box sets of work by female filmmakers. Mm. So at this point, it's a bit about let's stop measuring and let's start looking at the films and, and seeing what we can see about them. That's just what I'm more interested in saying. The other thing is when you start talking about the numbers, the inevitable question people want to know is like, but why did it stop? And a lot of the reasons are quite obvious, but also let's not focus on why people left their careers early. Let's look at the work they did. Mm-hmm. That's more interesting to me. Um, I, you know, one of the things I tell students is, you know, we can often dismiss someone as not being an important filmmaker because we look at their filmography mm-hmm. and it's quite short. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that means nothing. Yeah. You know, obviously filmmakers often make lots and lots of films and this is no disrespect to you know your goddards um or your hitchcocks who have you know stacks and stacks of films but you know women in the early 20th century mid 20th century etc they often just simply stopped working when they got married 
mm. and had babies. Mm-hmm. It's not even complicated, even if before you get into in institutional sexism. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Which, let's not. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you know, so someone who's made one film. Let's go and find out what's interesting about that one film. Yeah. It's not about stacking someone up to say, this person is an auteur to rival so-and-so. We have plenty of examples of women who've had long and brilliant careers making many great films, you know, whether it's Vard or Settling or Von Trotter or all these people. Mm. They're wonderful. But also, there's nothing wrong with looking at sort of one-offs. Yeah, I, I was always sort of intrigued by the one-offs, you know, and that went <laughs> that ran from, you know, the dawn of cinema to the recent times. I remember, like, you know, um, you know, being obsessed and being a big film nerd as a kid and finding the screenwriter's name. Um, and if it was a woman I'd be, and it was, like, you know, a horror film or a slasher film, which is what I grew up with as a kid, I'd be so obsessed. I'd be obsessed with this woman and then try and find out what else she wrote. And more often they wouldn't have written anything else. And it's like, what, 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 who is this person? You know, where, you know, what, did they, what else do they do? Where's their career stemming from? And later it was when I would research and sort of find things out about these people. And it's funny because a mutual friend of ours, Alexandra Haller Nicholas, who's just done a book about, you know, 800 women in horror. Um, she she researched some of these people that I'd, I'd throw names at her. I said, you know, Ruth Avagon, who wrote Night School, what did she do? And then Alex would find out stuff about her and be like, well, fuck, this is awesome, um, you know, to find out these people were, you know, critics or they worked in another sort of aspect in film industry or just weren't. They just jumped in, got a job, did the job, and then moved on. That wasn't for them. Um, and I, yeah. I absolutely love what you're saying there. Like it's this whole idea, this sort of, there's this kind of um, measure of greatness by a filmography list. And I don't think that should be the case at all because some of the great masters, you know, haven't done 10 or more films. Some of the some of the most interesting filmmakers have done less. So, I mean, I was just lucky enough to be writing about Francis Marion recently. They were incredibly um, prolific and successful and revered screenwriter. Marvellous, mm. absolutely brilliant. Of course, she also directed films. Um, co-directed some, she directed, I think, at least one by herself. And she walked onto that film set and she thought, I don't like this. It's just not what she wanted to do. I mean, I was also working on a, I don't know if you know, a British film called Sparrows Can't Sing Ah, in the 1960s. Yeah. Yeah. Joe Littlewood also did not like directing films. There might be reasons that we could think about that, why that might be. And if we're talking about contemporary filmmakers, we say, why, let's make film sets more inclusive to women or whatever. But just because someone only made one film doesn't mean it's not brilliant. And being a director, it just isn't the role for everybody. Exactly. Um, if it's the role with the most prestige, then I want every single woman who ever wants to aspire to that to get her hands on that megaphone. They still do it with megaphones, don't they? I think so. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. I'm sure. I'm sure Christopher Nolan has his megaphone. Oh, God. Like, Don't sit down. <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> quite a lot that she made this film failure and she said women can't direct films 
talk to her in the 1960s and she's talking a different tune. She's saying, I made this film, I wanted an all-female crew, I don't see why women can't make films that are just as good as men's films, you know, mm-hmm. I had a go at it too. And you just desperately want to watch this film, whether it's flawed or not, just to see what it was that she did when she got into that position. Um, obviously, it was a very emotional experience for her. Yeah, I want to find that film. Amazing, absolutely, and that's another thing that people don't take into account as well—that people's attitudes change, and they and they, and also it's okay to not feel confident with your work. So a lot of these women probably didn't, and a lot of these men didn't, you know. So it's that kind of thing of like, um, just because you know they weren't confident about it doesn't mean that the film should be disregarded with that in mind, or even celebrated or forced to be celebrated if it's you know. D.W. Griffith telling her it's great. Um, this is something that she sat on for years, but it's interesting that she said that she came around to it later in her in her life. That's really fascinating, and that would that's where it would definitely propel the idea to watch it. Like that would really generate some interest because she's confident with it now. Eventually, but yet yeah, it's lost one of those things as tragedies. Um, there's someone who I love that I that always pops up, and because I'd love to sort of know more about her, I'd wonder if you can tell us more about her and that was the woman that um worked alongside of course um charlie chaplin mabel normand who did a lot of stuff with him and there was a musical based on her mac and mabel which was really really lovely um i think bernadette peters actually originated the role um and maybe robert preston but yeah i want to know more about mabel normand because she kind of pops up um, you know, a lot in film history. She was associated with people like, you know, Fatty Arbuckle and Chaplin, etc. Um, but yeah, I'd love to know more about her. So what can you tell us about the wonderful Mabel? Oh, I mean, she was the wonderful Mabel. Mm. I mean, Mac and Mabel is is a fun musical. I mean, I think a lot of the things that it says, uh, it's, it's also, it was um, made at the beginning of the 80s, I think. I yeah. think a lot of the film history and that musical is um, discredited now. So, like, just watch it and have fun. Um, right. Don't, don't write it down. Um, Mabel Normand is a wonderful character. She was a brilliant performer and she directed, she obviously famously directed Charlie Chaplin. Um, Charlie Chaplin was quite sexist towards her. He made some comment about he didn't want to be directed by a woman, so he got her chucked off that duty. Um, you know, and I'm sure he was just reflecting the, the attitudes of his time. Um, and maybe he just didn't want another big star to be directing him. Who knows? So, you know, let's maybe draw a veil over that. But <laughs> she, she's an interesting example in that if you look at the films that she directed for Keystone, um, which she did, she directed lots of films for Keystone, the sort of the interesting thing about them is that there's not really much to say about them. They just look like all the others. Right. So it's not like, what a genius director. Look at all her individual trademarks. It's like, wow, she did exactly the same job as the men and still she gets she gets sort of forgotten when it comes to being uh, described as a director. She obviously was good at getting comedy performances out of people because she knew how to do that and her performances are sublime. But yeah, it's sort of like, yeah, there's a good... There's a good house director. If she wasn't working for Keystone, who knows how her style may have flourished? Because obviously, there, it was it was a fun factory, but it was still a factory. Um, but yeah, she had a, she had a really difficult career, and obviously, there were things, health problems, that meant that she died young. But if you look at um, her longer films, like Mickey, I mean, it's absolutely brilliant stuff, absolutely wonderful, and she just had a persona that was irrepressible on the screen. It would have been interesting to see if she could have had the kind of creative control as a director as some of her slapstick peers. Mm-hmm. At the moment, the films we've got of hers basically show you that she is more than competent slapstick director. There's not, there's not a lot more there. 
Right. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned um, Chaplin's attitude towards her because my brain went straight to the film he uh, behind the screen because there's that yeah. whole thing where the the young woman wants to be in the film industry. I think she wants to be an actress, but they don't. They reject her. They keep rejecting her and putting her down. And then the only thing she can do is resort to dressing up as a boy. Um, in, in order to work as a stagehand in that film. So my brain just went there when you were talking about Chaplin's relationship to her. I think Mabel should have tricked him and be like, all right, <laughs> yeah. all right, I'm That's right. Oh, like, hey, you know, it would have been a good trick to play on him. I mean, it's interesting what someone can see as a sort of injustice when they want to make a story that's sentimental a mm. little bit or just, just comedy. You know, to can see an injustice when they're making fiction can perpetuate the same kind of, unfairness shall we say um in their real life you know absolutely and and just in the world of comedy because you know a lot of a lot of silent film um you know the, some of the greatest you know slapstick comedy obviously comes from silent film um as an extension of vaudeville and all other aspects of theater but coming into the film forum and you know comedy becoming something that was uh, a big major genre that was you know pulling audiences what incredible women um, behind the camera can you think of that really kind of um, sort of spearheaded a lot of that um, as far as the comedy side of things? Because if you think of, you know, obviously there's people like Fanny Bryce and stuff who were vaudevillians who made their transition to film, but um, people sort of, their brains go to Buster Keaton and Chaplin, etc. instantly and Fadi Arbuckle. But what, what women, um, more so behind the camera, were kind of really sort of responsible for a lot of the comedy stuff that was happening during that period. I and mean, when you think about comedy directors, you're not coming up with a vast list of women, mm-hmm. particularly if you're thinking, well, you're not really coming up with a list of women at all, um, to be frank. And sorry, it's just started raining in a very British way here, it's slightly distracting me. Um, okay. It just something to whoosh. The, the problem with thinking about comedy in the silent era, and we start getting to the question of thinking about equivalence. So what you really want is you want to discover that Mabel Norman didn't die young, that she lasted until the late 20s, you know, at the top of powers, and she had a big studio and she was calling the shots. And unfortunately, that's not true. Um, Powerful women in comedy at that period, you've maybe got Marion Davis as a star. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look earlier, in the earlier period, you've got a lot of female performances on in slapstick comedy and I think it's quite interesting when you think about what you think about directing I think I'm quoting Maggie Hennefeld here who is the, the person you need to read on women in slapstick comedy absolutely she says something like you know if you're directing a comedy film especially these early ones you really only say run over there and turn over that apple cart right. the, the trick of the film is in how you turn over the apple cart so in a way, you see the performances on screen and that's, that's the creative input behind that movie quite mm-hmm. often. So it's all about how the slapstick is performed and rehearsed and worked out. So if you look in the early period, so we're looking in the tens, you see lots of women who are starring in full-on slapstick films, um, both in Europe and America and often switching names when they work between the two. And so they're not so revered and they can go into this whole kind of like mega owning a studio becoming a big star thing that happens with your Buster Keatons but they're there at the heart and sort of origins of film slapstick comedy I mean the other person to say I could have just answered this question much more simply and just said Alice Guy Blachet who made absolutely heaps of hilarious comedies and often quite feminine comedies like her famous film about um, pregnancy cravings 
called right. Madam's Cravings. Have you seen it? No, that sounds incredible. It's a, it's a wonderful film in which this woman who's pregnant, she keeps running around and she keeps having these cravings for things. So she steals like a lollipop off a baby and she thinks she has some absinthe or something like that, maybe a cigar, all these things she shouldn't really be having. <laughs> Fantastic. As she steals them, you then go to a close-up of her enjoying them. So you really are put in the position of feeling a bit... You're empathising with her, you're identifying with her, this woman who just wants to taste all these different tastes, and when she wants to taste them, she wants to taste them now. Mm-hmm. And it's a very exciting kind of film. She did a lot of chases and people rolling down hills and barrels as well. But, um, yeah, um, comedy and early film, it's just hard to extricate the two. In the silent era, it gets a little bit more stratified. You know, this is comedy and this is drama. But... Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I, I love. You mentioned Marion Davis, who's a favourite. I love her. Like, what an amazing career! And that is someone who really succeeds in the transition. I feel from silent to talk to talkies, um, and she always played those kind of. Well, my favourite roles of hers are always sort of the the earthy kind of robust. Um, young women who are not, you know, sometimes uh, sort of farm-based or sort of rural-based who come into the big city or sort of there's that transition there that they have to sort of find their feet in a different world. They're displaced sort of heroin. Uh, one of my favourites is her as the sort of Irish, um, you know, fun-loving gal who gets into the world of society and Pego my heart. And she has that really beautiful yeah. friendship with the dog, which is really sweet. I'm a big fan of dogs in cinema. But she, she that that's someone who I think absolutely gets sort of undervalued as a as a comedian as a dramatic actress but as someone who really does amazing work in comedy um on both sides of speakies talkies and non-speaking speakies i like that (laughs) my brain my brain went speak easy for some reason and and combined it a bit of a hybrid (laughs) well you know i think the talkies should be prohibited so they're the speakies i mean whether you blame will not William Randolph Hearst by trying to push her into a certain kind of dramatic thing, whether you blame Citizen Kane for mm-hmm. somehow implying that she wasn't as talentless. You know, Marion Davis is one of the most fascinating characters of the silent era, of silent Hollywood. She was the glue that held a lot of people together. She's always there in the most interesting people's stories. Uh, she was supportive of people. You know, she had her own issues, obviously. And what's remarkable about the fact that you sort of feel like you can't imagine silent Hollywood existing without Marion Davis and her input and support and everything she did for other people. And then when you see her on film, I mean, I'm obviously focusing more on the, the, the muties, the, the silent films. Yeah. Great. Um, <laughs> you see something like show people or the patsy. What you have is a woman who, you know, whatever people assume about her, just in completely gives herself over to the comedy. Mm. Um, it's, it's sophisticated, it's done really well, but also there's absolutely no holding her head apart from it. There's no holding anything back. She's fully there for the gag. And, and that's just irresistible. And actually, I think quite disarming. I'm not sure that people really expect that. If they've read a little bit of film history, I'm not sure they're ready for Marion Davis right. when they see her. And um, well, that's exciting in itself. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Um, so your one of your earliest works um, was a book for the BFI, and that was on Pandora's box. So can you talk yeah. about can you talk about um, how that came about? Because yeah, um, stunning. What a film, and what a film to write a monograph on. Uh, why was that the one chosen? Um, obviously, you know, there's obvious reasons I could probably you know think of because it is such an amazing example of perfect you know silent cinema and louise brooks is divine and the, the script and it involves jack the ripper so what what, what was it about that film and yeah tell me about the process there 
What I want to say is I want to say I've always loved that film. That's not true. I've always loved that film from the second time I watched it. The first time oh. I watched it, and I think a lot of people have this experience with that film, you sort of love her, the lead character, Lulu, or you're fascinated by her, but the film itself can be a little bit disarming, a little bit much to take. The first time I watched it, I thought, I'm not entirely sure what I feel about that film, which is the kind of thing that, for me, makes me want to watch a film again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found this film incredibly fascinating and I thought that this should be and obviously there was quite a lot written on this and it was fantastic as well but I wondered why it wasn't in the BFI film classics uh, collection I thought it probably should be I thought someone would have done that and I was having a conversation with someone who said you know you should write one of those film classics and they said yes we should have more silent films what would you pick and so I just um, instead of saying here's something I've done lots of work on I just said the one I thought was in need of a classic which was Pandora's Box Mm -hmm. so and I mean it wasn't like oh right contract straight away but it was a bit like that's a good idea and so I went and looked at the film and I realized exactly what it was that sort of bugged me about it I suppose that I thought it, it deserved a classic it deserved a monograph it's unusual among classic films, not just that it wasn't a hit, a lot of classic films weren't a hit at the time, but because of what happened with Pabst after the film was made and with the entire crew of the film, pretty much everyone who worked on the film was Jewish, um, apart from Pabst and the star Louise Brooks. And unfortunately, for various reasons, Pabst decided to stay in Austria and continue working in the German film industry during the Second World War. So you have everyone who worked on the film who are just all over Europe and America. Pabst is in Germany or Austria, and Louise Brooks is on her own long journey, shall we say, her long dark night of the soul through the 1940s. Mm-hmm. By the time the film gets rediscovered in the 1950s and reacclaimed as something that's interesting, no one who worked on the film has been asked about, well, hardly anyone who's worked on the film has been asked about what it was like to work on that film. A lot of them don't even want to talk about Pabst. So we have a film, the sort of the history of which has been written entirely by the testimony of its leading lady. Right. And that is the only story we have about Pandora's box pretty much everywhere you look. So my intention with the book was partly to really look at this testimony, really look at what Louise Brooks had said and read between the lines sometimes, because I think that you need to do that quite often, but also to find every scrap of other bit of information I could and sort of put Pabst back into the narrative and put all the other actors and people who worked on the film um, back into the narrative. And so it was a kind of, it was a way of sort of like saying, we have this great story, but for once, instead of saying, oh great, we've only got a woman's account of this film, I thought, let's find out what the men thought. And (laughs) looked and looked and looked. It's such a mesmerising film. that There is some great writing on it out there, but there is also a lot of writing where people just tell you how they feel about the main character, which I find fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's not that useful for me. I really wanted to go and find out what the cinematographer thought and what the editor thought and what the assistant director thought and find out exactly how this film was put together. And so I did quite a lot of that. I spent an awful long time That's really, trying to That's really that. amazing. Sorry to just intersect there because it's every every reading you're right everything i've read on that film everything that sort of pops up in you know um big over uh, overview books that mention it in a paragraph or so it's always about the character it's, like, it's treated like a character study um we, we, we you know it's always a discussion about this woman this character and what she does and her downfall etc and how she manipulates people and how she's sort of you know ruined by you know um, chance and circumstance and what she what she does um to herself or whatever and it's never about 
yeah, perspectives from other people. And it's really fascinating that it's a kind of a history based on the leading, um, from the leading lady's perspective rather than Paps. So Paps never talked about this film in any kind of... He just wasn't asked about it. He had right. so many other films that were successful that people talked to him about. There aren't as many interviews with him on this and especially mm. with the other people who worked on it. I actually spent a long time trying to find out who the editor was because mm. there's a chap who's credited as the editor and he's not credited as the editor on any of Pabst's other films. And Pabst normally cut his own films or got his assistant director to do it. Mm. So I spent a long time finding out who this guy was. And I don't want to spoil it for anyone who has yet to read this amazing book. <laughs> but the <laughs> chap who's credited as the editor is not the editor of the film. He is he's a chap who had many jobs in theatre and film. A chap who, one of his greatest achievements was compiling a very important book in the history of dirty joke telling. It's wow. a compilation of vernacular bawdy humour. Okay, amazing. Uh, <laughs> and yet he still has an important connection to the film. So, you know, I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but there is a kind of punchline. There yeah. is a reason why he is connected with the, the film, but it's not what you might think. So you went through all this kind of fun with it. And then I also did a kind of feminist reading of the film because Mm -hmm. it needs it, it deserves it, it owns it. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. I wanted to ask you, let's let's sidestep for a second. Just as um, a writer, as a critic, as a film historian, how much do you like to do? I mean, with the monograph for the BFI, you're going to have to do a combo or maybe just analytical. But if you were to do a free-form book, if someone was to say, write a book about your favourite movie or an overview of your, you know, a, a subgenre or a filmmaker or whatever you want to do, um, how much do you like writing, say, film criticism or academic sort of writing or an analysis or, yeah, feminist take on certain stuff? And how much do you love writing sort of production history stuff? And how do you like to combine them both? Do you prefer one or the other? Do you think they're both vitally important and they, they kind of need each other for something to work? Or do you sort of veer off into one direction you'd rather veer off into one direction just to sort of you know cut out all the research aspects maybe of production history but you know what i mean so like is it is it because i get asked that a lot with um my work it's like oh you know one compliment i get which is really nice is that i like to combine it um to have a nice healthy combination of criticism as well as um, production history. Um, but sometimes, you know, you just want to focus on, say, a feminist reading into whatever the film is um, and maybe not have to go and, you know, interview someone or whatever. But, yeah, tell me about your process there, um, either in regards to Pandora's Box or in, in general. I'm grinning from ear to ear because to ask a silent film historian whether they get bogged down doing too much research, half the time... We're like desperate to research more things and there just isn't anything there. Right. Particularly if you're looking at women's film history, you often reach these sort of dead ends. Um, sometimes you can creatively navigate around those dead ends, but yeah, absolutely. I'm not often overburdened with research materials. Um, to sort of, I know, I sound like such a brat there. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, obviously, because I do do lots of classic Hollywood stuff, but when you would just drown, yes. you know. You could drown in how much there was yes. there to fail to read about that film. So I'm just saying it's quite funny. Like, oh, no, not too much research. I'm like, I tend to do everything I can. Um, the, the well, You mentioned academic writing. Just to get that out of the way, I do do things that qualify in some form as academic writing. And apologies to the editors of that form, which <laughs> choose book, but I've just never been very good at doing academic writing. Even when I was doing my master's or my, my first degree, I used to get the mark, you know, you write 
you don't write like an academic. <laughs> and um, so it always sounds like journalism. I mean, I think I sent you a paper of mine earlier and you probably can tell that that it's not um, academic style. That was, it wasn't, like, wasn't, that was a transcript. I like, I like to combine the production history and the analysis. And what I find particularly interesting is that bit where they overlap. Yes. You know, you could talk for a long time about a beautiful shot and then you could find out how it was made and you need to understand who decided to do it, I suppose, if you if you know, if you know. But also there can be interesting things when you look at the history of people's lives and the films that they made or where they were in their life at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that is... That can be quite instructive sometimes. And just to remind yourself that the real people made this film, it wasn't made by a camera, you know? Mm-hmm. Because we can get a little bit like, look at these images that seem to have fallen into place together. But really, there's a there's a human decision behind all of it, and there's, there's costs and budgets and chances and all kinds of things. Um, I think that with Pandora's Box, I very much... Um, split the two half the book into two halves so there was the sort of production history i sort of talked about frank vedekind talked about louise brooks talked about pabs talked about how the film came together and then went into analysis because it's the kind of film that i think really repays kind of reveling in those images in that way but for me the most interesting point is where the two things overlap yeah absolutely i just got chills from hearing that because it is it's beautiful it's like it's it's also it's when your research and your analysis um uh, sort of gel and everything sort of makes sense and also when you, and when you kind of bring in say um, you know a feminist argument or a feminist perspective and then discuss someone like Alice Roberts or someone um, like Louise Brooks and then marry that marry their experiences to what you're bringing to the table as far as reading into their performance or their character or where their character sits in the world there in regards to being a woman it's 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 really all vitally important i think and so i think there's a bit of a kind of um push for us writers to sort of be um either you know uh, all obsessed um (laughs) with production history and facts um and sort of leaving the sort of critical stuff to the side um and then then the other aspect is people kind of wanting um the critical stuff sort of you know more focused and more centered and more uh, being the the product to be more um critical critic centric um or or an analytically centric rather than it being kind of more about facts or you know production history so it's weird when um uh, you know you you sort of listen to your audience in that regard because sometimes it can kind of throw you i feel like for me personally i'm sure you're the same you just sort of have an organic feel for what you want to write in that regard to that to that piece if you're doing an essay on something that you're you know in the back of your mind going i really want to bring this to it because i think as you said earlier which is a beautiful quote um from you it deserves it and i think that's absolutely right it's that kind of thing where certain films many films deserve you know that kind of voice because they probably haven't had it before and you know and then I can't really do spoilers, can I? But you know, <laughs> writing, they had the absolute honour and privilege of writing about Sweet Charity recently, mm. and I know you've gone into that film more deeply than I have because of doing the commentary. But there were things I wanted to tell people, like in the essay, this is how the film came about. That mm-hmm. it was a stage show, and this is the time in Bob Fosse's life that it came from, and this is what it was inspired by. And mm-hmm. I feel like these are all the facts you need to know and how it got cast and so forth. But also, as a slapstick um, fan. 
I had things I needed to say about that film. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting to add that into people's enjoyment of the film and see whether they agree. Because, you know, often you can lead people to finding new things in the film. I, I think of that a lot with film introductions, actually, you know, before a screening, to, to sort of put a few ideas in people's heads about what they might get get from the film rather than seeing that it was very well done. The, the thing that's deadly to me is people say, oh, this film's very well done and they know that the name of the director's important and so they say, well, of course it's brilliant because he's brilliant. Mm. And it's this closed loop where you don't get anywhere. I kind of want to say, but look, the person who wrote it also wrote this kind of thing. So can you see that there's this old element in here or mm-hmm. this star has also done this? You know, it's a it's a film noir, but the lead actor used to be in comedies. Mm-hmm. So look at that. You know, bring all these things in so that people's synapses will start firing. And then I think it's much more enjoyable and also productive, but mostly enjoyable. That's what I'm focusing on, enjoyable way to look at cinema. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you brought up Sweet Charity because one folk, and I love that you brought up Slapstick because, um, you know, if they could see me now is all that. Um, you know, it's all that kind of, it's a tribute to Vaudeville. It's Shirley MacLaine just as a, a, an amazingly endearing, um, you know, sweetheart of comedy um, and tragedy. She plays it so beautifully. She dances between both aspects so wonderfully. Um, but I was in my commentary at one moment, I sort of discussed the Church of Satan and um, Sammy Davis Jr. and his connection with Anton LaVey and how that film also with Shirley MacLaine's involvement has an aside line- uh, connection to The Exorcist with William. Peter Blady basing Chris McNeil on Shirley MacLaine and then MacLaine doing the film The Possession of Joel Delaney and it's during the period of the God is Dead movement so there's all that stuff going on that I just wanted to inject into this whole sequence in the commentary but um, it's that it's that sort of thing where you bring in you know different aspects to something so I brought in the devil to Sweet Charity which I'm pretty proud of I brought in what's that? say it again and you brought in the devil well <laughs> <laughs> I, I just can I just say, Lee, that's very on brand. Okay. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> but um, so sorry. I was just going to say, I think if you are talking about Bob Fosse and you're not talking about demons, then you're exactly. doing it wrong. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Not absolutely. <laughs> not saying he's a demon. He's got demons. He's got demons. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's funny that Jerome Robbins' book was called Dancing with Demons. Bob Fosse's probably should have been as well. Um, the so Pandora's Box, stunning. So that book led to? Well, that book led to, um, basically, that's why I quit my job. <laughs> that's uh-huh. why I quit my day job. I had the, had the, uh, the conduct to write that, and I thought, well, why don't I just write this book properly? I could have taken some time off, but I thought, why don't I just quit my job and go freelance? And ever since, so yeah, ever since summer 2016, all I do is write and talk about old movies, mostly for money. <laughs> Excellent. And yeah, so, I mean, um, and obviously what it led to in the more serious way is that, uh, you know, I've had lots of productive conversations about Pandora's Box and silent cinema and women's film history in that period because of what we're unearthing and when we, we look at the films in this way. Um, yeah, it's... So those it's, three those three box sets you're talking about, so Ida Lupino, um, that's one of them, right? No, I'm thinking of three box sets, sep- three separate box sets all about... Of silent... Um, all about silent era filmmakers who were women. Oh, yes. So the Pioneers of, books. Yes, I'm sorry. That's right. Yeah. There's three. There's a, the Flickr Alley, BFI, and the Kino Lorba. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and there's so much to say. Amazing. So you're involved with those releases, obviously? 
Um, actually, I was only involved with the BFI one. I wrote an essay on Alice Key Blachet for that one. Um, I've been involved in that I've been watching them and enjoying them and using them <laughs> in my research. Lovely. Um, I'm very excited about those, be- those being out in the world. Amazing. Stunning. Um, so what work have you done in the home media entertainment field? Because you've done quite a bit there. Um, what have you done? What was your first um, experience working with the company on a release? Well, I mean, I'll be honest, like someone said to me at, at my old job, they said, I had dinner with a friend of mine and she's got some box set full of silent movies and she can't find anyone to write about them. So I said she could call you. <laughs> I remember just being like, which particular silent films? And she said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and so I wrote an essay. My first booklet essay was on um, Ozu film called Walk Cheerfully. She was quite intimidated, but that's marvellous. And then, yeah, recently, since I've been freelance, I've been doing quite a lot. So the first thing I sort of did after that was I wrote an essay for a Marx Brothers box set on the coconuts, and and that was such fun. Mm-hmm. And that straddled both um, silence and sound. So I've gone on and done quite a lot of things. I've been doing essays, um, and I've been using little video extras. So um, the film that you mentioned earlier that you pronounced beautifully, Berserk, mm-hmm. well, in my accent, it's Berserk. And I did a little extra for that about the history of Joan Crawford's career. And so I'm doing a few of these quite often, the sort of potted histories of Styles' careers. And Fantastic. So you, I, see, I love video essays. I've done two. I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're just fun to do, just the free form and just, you know, being able just to sort of do a condensed um, focus is really fun. I friggin' love them. <laughs> but yes, your John Crawford um, piece is stunning. I absolutely love it. What a fun film as well. Berserk is a great, oh, fun film. And Yeah, and you know, as a British person, I was like, you know, sort of half cringing, half loving every second of that film. <laughs> um, I have to tell you, and it's an exclusive, except I can't tell you the details, is that I'm about to record my first ever audio commentary. Oh, well done. Awesome. Well, I'll say until I've done it, um, but it's on a pure B picture, so that's going to be quite fun. Oh, terrific. Well, you message me and you let me know which one that is. <laughs> um, <laughs> probably involved in the same project. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> it seems to happen that way. The It's funny that Berserk, um, you know, we both worked on that release and it goes back to, you know, um, uh, your love for silent cinema as well because Joan Craw- one of my favourite Joan Crawford early films is The Unknown which is also Absolutely. a circus-themed horror film and, you know, with obviously the wonderful Lon Chaney with that fantastic plot, like a woman with a fear of arms, like just stunning. But it's really weird, that kind of nice sort of circular sort of connection between Joan and circuses and your love for silent movies and working on Berserk. Can you talk us through your favourite Joan Crawford films? Because, I mean, that's a really tricky question, or what period of Joan you love, because I love her from everything from humoresque to you know, Torch Song, which I think is just fucking crazy and wonderful. Tell me about you. Tell tell, tell me Pamela's love for for Joan. I'm just just sitting there going, of course you love Torch Song. Of course you do. So, I mean, I'm a big Joan Crawford fan. I remember when I was a teenager, a student really getting into the film roles and just, you know, you see Mildred Pierce for the first time and you think that, you know, why did no one tell me about this film before? It's just everything that you could ever want. I've watched that film endless times. I think it's incredible. And it's, it, it, I get chills from that film. Mm. Because of my sort of proclivities, shall we say, Lee, I do 
uh, back towards the sort of silent, but particularly with Joan, the, the 30s stuff. I love grasping on the make Joan. I love Joan as a shop girl. Yeah. I love Joan all the way up to the women, or in which case, I, which I think she just pulls off the most fantastic comedy performance. It's <laughs> pure overacting. I swear she does more overacting in the women than she does in Berserk. Uh, but it's brilliant. It's absolutely, absolutely impeccable fun. I, the women's I, I a turning her. point, isn't it? The women's kind of when she becomes a society bitch, right? Because before that, yeah, yeah. she's kind of a, a shop girl, a working girl. Yeah, she's a working girl that you identify with. Yeah. You know, in films like the Dorothy Arsner film, yeah. you know, you, you see her as someone who is going to get to the top, whether it's by sleeping with the right guy or working hard or whatever it might be. Mm. And you sort of admire her for that. And it's wonderful that in the women, when and she really wanted that part and people didn't, people thought she was mad she sort of turns that stereotype on its head and says what if I was just a grasping husband stealing shallow woman who's mean to children (laughs) but fabulous but she does it Mm -hmm. and and yet you still get quite a lot from her character because of the downfall I think and you realise what's at stake for her oh he's a fantastic film I think that film is so funny and so so full of memorable moments you know yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's remarkable. Um, yes, okay. So, Joan, that's your that's your take on Joan. You like the earlier? That's really cool. That's really interesting because I think that's also you know under sort of state. No one talks about that period of Joan as much as they do, you know, Mildred Pierce and post that, and also you know wild, you know, crazed Joan. Um, and then also you know whatever happened to Baby Jane? Yeah, then the hat, the, the horror stuff that she did, which is terrific. But I love that whole period. We did a film festival um, a couple of years ago now all on the grand, you know, Dame Gwinnell sort of films, you know, the what they call the hag exploitation movies. And it went really well. And it was really interesting sort of to champion these women who did these um, amazing films later in their careers. And not just Joan and Betty Davis, but, you know, Olivia de Havilland and even to the to the extent of people like Yvonne DiCarlo and, um, uh, you know, um, uh, Gloria Swanson pops up in a bunch of horror films as well, like The Killer Bees. And so it's really interesting to see see their, their careers kind of reforming in that period where they sort of took over, took on these roles as kind of the as the leads and as these monstrous women. They sort of were reinvented as these monstrous kind of crazy, you know, harpies. Do you, do you, are you a fan of that kind of that subgenre of horror? Or do you are you a fan of what these women sort of did? In that period, because there was a lot, there's a lot of critical sort of analysis there as far as you know, is it is it good, is it bad? What why? Of course they had, of course they had to become these kind of monstrous entities on screen, you know, in their later years. But I, I just I don't know I revel in them. I think they're fun. <laughs> I think it's interesting. I mean, just just to use Joan Crawford as an, as an example, yeah. that when she comes back, she has to keep coming back in a more monstrous form. Mm. You know, because Mildred Pierce is this monster of a woman who steps out of her place, you know. She steps out of her place and she becomes something she shouldn't. And every time she sort of has a comeback, she becomes a more transgressive role. And, and it gets to the point where with um, the hagsploitation, and, oh, God, I hate that word. I hate that word, hag. Hagsploitation, I can just about get on with. But okay. um, <laughs> it's, it's a bit like, we'll let you back in as long as you are prepared to be this. Right. Or, as, or, you know play up to this idea and it's just what she did with the women she came back and said well you know why don't i play it again but as a monster and she keeps playing it up and up and up throughout her career until you know you start off with this lovely young thing in our dancing daughters and you end up with berserk and it's fantastic you know it's exciting because the thing that happens to women in hollywood is they get trapped in this cycle of beauty as soon as you're not looking like you're 28 anymore that you 
you have to go. So to find a way to break out of that, whatever it might take, is interesting. I was recently um, researching a piece about Hedy Lamarr, who had a exploitation comeback lined up, but it didn't happen. She mm. collapsed on set. And you think, what would that have done for her sort of later image if she was actually working and in films that people enjoyed, rather than just becoming this kind of off-screen monster right. that people were quite dismissive of? So, yeah, I mean, you know, it would it would be great to see to say that film history allowed people to come back and be suave, like chaps get to be James Bond until they've got grey hair, you know. Right. But, but you know, if that's what it takes, and if that's what you're prepared to do, why not? The idea that Olivia de Havilland is in a horror movie, even when you're watching it, is mind-boggling. <laughs> and she could, and then she'll pop up in things where she's not the monstrous role. Like she could pop up in Irwin Allen's The Swarm. You know, mm. as someone who, you know, is one of the, the, the many stars and, you know, what Irwin Allen did when he peppered his films with, you know, classic Hollywood stars as well as the, the, the current, you know, people, the current crop. But I think um, being a fan of horror in general and also being a massive fan of classic Hollywood cinema and also being a fan of these incredible women, I I just, I, I think it's really, I don't know, it's really rewarding seeing them being you know, psychotic killers. Um, but I do understand the the fact of the matter that being trapped in that kind of role is also detrimental. So it's, it's a bit of a, I don't know, it's a bit of a um, catch-22. But, yeah. When I did Hollywood allow us to be our, you know, anyone allow them to be their complete self? It never does. So, yeah. you know, I wouldn't beat yourself up about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm not apologising for liking these films. But, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting to have these discussions about it because, yeah, I think... When you have a, when you host a film festival and everyone who's come and everyone who's on the panels, um, including Alexandra and other people like um, Sally Christie and Emma Westwood, other critics here in Melbourne, are all big fans of it. It's kind of a bit lopsided. So it's it's interesting to hear. Um, but, you know, I, mean, I think it's, I think probably my attitude to this is similar to my attitude to a lot of Hollywood stuff. Like, how marvelous! How wonderful! What a beautiful film! How fantastically crafted! What great performances! Hmm. There's probably some hideously sexist, let alone anything else, assumptions at the heart of it. I mean, you know, there's there's something quite grim in, in the middle of most Hollywood films. I mean, we've had a lot of famous examples of that recently. People turning things over, but you know, there are assumptions and prejudices to be found in all of these films, you know? So it's not its not like, oh, some of these films are pure and then a few of these are sort of hateful. It's just, uh, I, I, I'm constantly fascinated by how the machine works. Mm. Much as I might criticising, I just want to see those teeth chomp. Yeah, fair enough. One of those um, aspects, you sent me a wonderful transcript. I'm assuming it's a transcript of a lecture you've done. And just going back to what we started off with your bio, the end, the, the tail end of your bio mentions your current research is grave sites of stars. And I've been lucky enough to go to Forever Hollywood and, um, you know, uh, like a ghoul peruse these graves and take photos of them. I think I took a photo of me lying down on Tyrone Powers. Um, grave, and I went to death sites as well. I went to see where Salminio was stabbed, and uh, for fuck's sake, yeah, we're, we're both in the same boat there. Um, <laughs> Pamela, just these weirdos. Um, but what I um, love about that is it's a culture in itself. These kind of um, this whole idea of um, 
you know, people who are kind of really fascinated by Hollywood deaths and also the resting places of these stars and the non-resting places, like if their bodies aren't actually there but the monument is there. I know people like Jane Mansfield isn't where she's buried, etc. Um, and then also the sort of culture that it sort of um, inspired in film because my, when you sent me your transcript my brain went instantly to the day of the locust and that sequence at the funeral where there's all those autograph hounds and they're just sort of they're just lingering at the funeral of a superstar of a star and it's not like they're mourning they're just ready to pounce on stars that they'll find with their autograph books at hand so it's <laughs> it's this kind of really vampiric kind of weird parasitic um weird world um and obviously that book and that film day of the locust sort of you know plays up with that and you know, it makes it a bit more exaggerated than what it is. But it's there. And the wood watchers, those people that, you know, want to go and see Natalie Wood's footprints and handprints at, China, at Grandma's Chinese fill up with water when it rains in LA. What the, like all this sort of culture. Can you talk us through that? And one of the things that I love in your lecture is um, the, obviously the Valentino cult, um, which is really cool. But let me, let me hear about your fascination with this, this, this realm of Hollywood history and, and this sort of subculture in Hollywood and also what you're doing with it? Uh, I mean, things are slightly on hold. So, I mean, when you talk about Day of the Locusts, that's a great example of the Day of the Locusts. Um, Hollywood's primary star myth, you know, it's been made four times now as a star is born. Mm. And, of course, that's a film that was inspired by a funeral. Uh, Thalberg's funeral because there were so many people there. They said, you know, this is this is a this is the same as a premiere. Someone dying is is a, a starry event, and so you know, star deaths and star mourning, um, and Hollywood mourning. It's all bound up with our idea of what a star is. You know, in a star grave, it's sort of part of my thesis. Partly is that you know, star graves are different to other graves. It's also about the stories of the graves, and it's also about the way we mourn people. So. I wrote an essay recently for a book about female desire in the cinema and I wrote about that sort of outpouring of what seems like madness that happens when a a handsome male film star dies young. So the classic example is Rudolf Valentino, that obsessive cult around his death. Um, You mentioned Dorothy Davenport Reed, obviously Wallace Reed was another example, but we have James Dean, of course, and then more recently people like River Phoenix and Heath Ledger, and these are all the people that I wrote about. And then I got sidetracked while I was writing that into this idea of graves and had the sort of chilling experience of visiting um, in Seattle the the graves side by side of Bruce and Brandon Lee. Mm. Obviously, the father and son who both died young, both died or on the brink of their breakthrough success. It's quite a emotive place to be. It's also an incredibly starry place to be where people are posing cheerily in Bruce Lee's grave because, I mean, he's an absolute icon. They don't need to, need to explain why people are excited about Bruce Lee. And so I began to think about more and more of this stuff. And so I wrote this paper on Stardom in the Archive for a conference called Stardom in the Archive about film star graves and the stories behind them. Because just like films aren't just a text that exists out of time, even a film star grave has got its own story. It's got the story of how it happened to be there, how people happened to be buried there or not buried there, what's happened since, um, how pe- and then also of how people respond to that grave. Now, because as you've probably already guessed by now, I'm incredibly highbrow. Um, I started that paper by showing the clip from um, This Is Spinal Tap, where they visit Elvis <laughs> Presley's grave. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, that clip expresses what it's like to visit a star's grave so much. You know, the sort of the slight awkwardness, the need to pay tribute, they start singing, and then the idea that you take something away from it that you 
can't quite handle a sense mm-hmm. of largeness as they say too much perspective i'm not going to swear um, <laughs> so you know i'm fascinated maybe it's because i'm quite a shy different person but i'm fascinated by what makes people go to marilyn monroe's grave and kiss cold marble leave their lip print there what makes people want to sit vigil uh Fantino's grave you know what what makes us, and I'm the same, I've been drawn to these sites, what makes us want to go and pay tribute somewhere, which, I mean, you know, the soul of James Dean, God knows where that is, but the James Dean that we've all identified with is in his movies. We could just watch the movies. We don't need to go out to the highway, you know. Right. We don't need to go to steal his grave, but people do. We do feel the need to be at these places. They're the places where we're allowed to remember them. And, um, and it's, it, it's interesting with James Dean, like he, that his death and his legacy um inspires works all about that and about cult sort of behavior like september 30 1955 that terrific film um and also of course come back to the five and dime jimmy dean jimmy dean you know which is all about you know hero worship idol worship so that's that's another aspect to it as well it's like these things spawn works yeah there is this Thing, you know, there are film stars. You know, if I say Joan Crawford, you think of all the famous roles. You don't think about the way Joan Crawford died. It's yes. very low down the things that you think about. Um, but if I said River Phoenix right. or James Dean, you know, we instantly think about their death. Some stars are in a way partially defined by their dying. And and this is what's interesting to me. And also one that there's something that's happening now, which I think the way we are mourning stars is changing. And that's quite exciting and quite troubling to me. So I'm a journalist by sort of profession and I've worked on the obituary desk. So for me, there are quite established rules of how you talk about people when they've died. So for example, if someone has something in their biography that is unsavory, you do put it in the obituary. You don't gloss over it because the obituary is meant to be truthful, but it's not what you push. It's not what you talk about in the moments that they've just died. And we're going away from that in a strange way where people are talking about obituaries should be a tribute and how can you write an obituary of a certain person because you'd have to discuss. Or people are trying to push to say the negative things the minute someone's died. There was a lot of discussion around, you mentioned that we would, there was a lot of discussion around Kirk Douglas after he died earlier this year. Mm. Um, You know, a lot of people wanted to say, well, let's not celebrate him because he... He, well, he himself admitted he was quite terrible in the way he treated women. And there is this rumour, it's more than a rumour, but it's still not substantiated that he, you know, assaulted Natalie Wood. And you're caught in this position where, you know, I'm an old-fashioned person where I'm like, this is not what we talk about the day that he's died. And people say, oh, but we have to sort of believe women survivors. And I, I don't want to say, oh, no, I know the old-fashioned way. I know the correct way to talk about it. I think people are changing in the way that they mourn people and we have to kind of understand that these things are quite living and I don't know what's going to happen. Well, you can all think of examples of people that when they die are not going to get the same glowing tributes as they would have done if they'd have died 10, 20 years earlier. So the whole process of memorialising people has become about kind of checks and balances, I think. And I don't know how, I don't know whether it's going to be an overcorrection that changes back, you know? Mm. Do you feel like there's like the, the air of mystery about stars is now gone and that we're in a kind of culture now where we probably we have so much information at the at the you know at our fingertips that we can find out someone like Kirk Douglas was an arsehole. Like, you know, it's 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 accessible to find this out. Um and then our judgment can play into how we mourn him or 
play out his legacy because when he died, I went, my brain, like he was talking about, just went straight to the films. It was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea as a kid, um, you know, which obviously I'm not discounting his horrendous behaviour because I knew that for many years. But as far as his death, if my little, you know, superficial tribute on social media is a still of him from a Disney classic. <laughs> That's not to say that it's excusing horrid behaviour. It's just that would be my tribute, like, which would be very, you know, trivial, I guess. In oh, no, I, mean, I, think, I think it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, Kirk Douglas did many good things. He maybe didn't do that thing that he said he did that was so good, but maybe he had a bit to do with it. Who knows? Breaking the blacklist. <laughs> you know, anyway, he's, we're fine. We're fine with him. He made the great films. And... You know, I think when people are aware of how they use social media, I think it's really interesting what you said now. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, we all love it, but that's not the big Douglas film, right? Mm. Virtually everyone who posted something about Kirk Douglas is going to post, say, Spartacus, right? right? Um, that's the big thing. And that's what I got asked about uh, on the news and things like that, is Spartacus. So people feel the need to... to make a tribute that's personal, so for you, it's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And some people want to say, I know the mainstream media are glorifying this person, and I want to say something that will put a spike in them. And I think it's really, it's it's a new development. And it's sort of wonderful that people feel that, you know, their voices mean so much. Um, I'm not sure that I would, uh, you know, it's difficult because someone like Kirk Douglas, he feels like Hollywood royalty, and he feels so distant to us all that we don't, you know, you're not really worried about offending his family if you say anything. But, you know, he still does have a family. And, uh, yeah, I think it's interesting that we have a counter-narrative when it comes to tributes. You know, someone posting 20,000 leads under the sea just makes people smile, but there's, there are other things people can say as well. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's that, that, see, this is really interesting because um, it's kind of made me think outside of the box of where your scholarly sort of, um, direction was going with this grave site thing because it is beyond just sites it is beyond a physical place of you know um paying tribute it's actually a culture in itself um that exists outside of someone being buried or someone having a monument put up and also the lasting legacy of someone uh in response to how they are remembered that's really that's really fascinating because there was a documentary just recently I'm, not, I'm sure you've seen it about natalie wood and when I heard about it, I kind of groaned because I thought, oh, I was just going to focus on, you know, was she killed or wasn't she? I don't need to hear that. I want to actually see a really nicely structured documentary that chronicles her film career because what a woman. Um, and not also, not just her acting, but like, you know, um, her producing work and how she sort of, you know, helped a lot of independent theatre happen, um, including things like The Boys in the Band, etc., and just her beautiful career. Um, and it was, but it did, obviously, you know, I think there were, like, you know, pillar moments throughout the the documentary that sort of discussed the death, you know, and kept going back to it. It was, like, maybe, like, four or five times through it as a through line. But essentially I left that documentary really loving it and enjoying it and... Um, rushing out and going back and watching Inside Daisy Clover and a whole bunch of films because it kind of, um, you know, re-sparked a real keen interest in her career because she's one of my faves. But it was like to paying tribute to someone in a, I guess I wouldn't call it a balanced way, but in that kind of um, counter-reactionary way where it's both things are sort of played up. 
um, you know, the, the idea of her as a star and what she means as an actress and a star, as well as the mystique behind her death. And so that's another way of sort of celebrating someone, I guess, and that kind of, you know, because mm. she's someone who isn't a James Dean where you instantly think of his death. Um, you know, so when you do think of his death straight away, rather than with Natalie Wood, you do have this huge catalogue of film. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I always go back to something that I learned on the obituary's desk, which was, you know, in the obituary, you put everything. You know, I remember, you know, you get into trouble if you didn't put in, you know, allegations or accusations or convictions or whatever it might be. Right. But when we chose a picture to go with the obituary, we never chose a picture of them frail at the end of their life or whatever. Like if they were a footballer or if they were a singer or whatever, choose a picture of them at their peak doing what they do. It's always the sort of rule. You know, obviously it's not so exciting if it's a politician, so. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, if you're going to have a ballerina, you're going to have her on stage and those kind of things. So I've always thought when you write about people's life stories as a film historian, you know, and I do a lot of this in a kind of journalistic capacity, writing features, is you focus on the work. You are obviously going to talk about their personal lives. You might have to talk about their unfortunate ends, but they deserve to be remembered for the work that they did because that's why we're interested in them, you know. I think if you are only interested in salacious personal life or gossip, then that's not film history. That's another thing. That's gossip writing or whatever. Um, and quite often I have co- helpful comments from gentleman readers who tell me that they think I should have talked more about the lady in question's marriages in a piece that I've written or, you know, I've talk, written about Joan Crawford and people said, you know, what about the abuse allegations? And I think, great perfectly viable in another piece, but I was writing about the films in this piece. I think people often aren't sure where the boundary should be. And Mm -hmm. I think that when you write about someone's life, you have to make sure you know, or their work, you know, you have to make sure what what you're writing about and how much you're going to bring in. Writing about Hedy Lamar recently, there's so much personal stuff that you can bring in, which is obviously very titillating. Yep. But I felt, just as you say, with the Natalie Wood biography, um, documentary, which I haven't had a chance to see yet, you know, it needs to be balanced with the discussion of the work, because otherwise you're just um, pulling through someone's dirty laundry. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a bit like the balance we're talking about between criticism and production history. Exactly. Absolutely. It's funny, um, the yeah, the scandal with Crawford and Mummy Dearest, etc. I mean, that's something that kind of does sometimes overshadow her in discussion with people who were who I'd like to call the unenlightened, you know. People who don't really <laughs> people who don't really like Crawford as an actress or don't know anything about her really, but they know about Mummy Dearest, you know, that kind of scandal does sometimes overshadow um, you know, a star with such magnitude and such, you know, power as someone like um the wonderful Crawford. So do you know what? So that's something else that sort of I feel like would someone like yourself fight against? Is that why you get people sort of asking why don't you discuss that stuff? I mean, you know, did you do? Do you want to? Is that something that's that's a point of interest? I mean, I think well, who couldn't be fascinated by the personal home life of someone like Joan Crawford? You know, and those allegations are very strong and they're very upsetting. Mm. All I can say about them as a third party is that they are contested, right? Mm. So. I mean, I think most people who've heard of Joan Crawford have heard of Mommy Dearest. You know, I don't think that story is hidden. I don't think it's submerged. I think if you make a pressing reference to it, that's probably all you need to do. Um, unless you're talking about her personal life for some reason or about her family life. Um, 
for me, you know, I find that these aspects of women's lives, women in Hollywood's lives, have often been over-discussed and the films have been under-discussed. Yes. So I'm quite happy to, you know, correct the balance a little bit. Um, you know, there's a, there's a worry that sometimes the way we best remember certain women in Hollywood, and men too, actually, um, is through the sort of caricature, you know, we don't remember Judy Garland, we remember mm. the kind of exaggerated sort of drag routine version of Judy mm. Garland. Which and, irritates and, me because it's such, like, that is, there is a star that did so much diverse work and people don't remember that or think about that and it really pisses me off because I, I do feel there is kind of like, and I don't, want, I don't want to call it a gay mafia or even like just a sort of diva worship thing, that is so detrimental to the legacy of this art, this artist. Um, and to sort of play up this whole, like you say, a drag trope of this woman this, and, and young girl, remember, like most, a lot of her career was being a kid. Like she was very young when she did things like, you know, everybody sing and um, thoroughbreds don't cry, etc. This is someone whose career has kind of basically been painted up as, as you say, a caricature. And that kind of irritates me uh, because I feel like, that's something that kind of is ongoing and kind of uh, an, an incessant sort of happening. Whereas something like the Crawford um, uh, case with, you know, Christina, you'd have to really kind of care or know, um, yeah. you know, it's not just sort of thrown at your face all the time in popular culture. It's something that you sort of have to, you know, be aware of um, uh previously but yeah so that's sort of something you absolutely hit the nail on the head there it's something that kind of does um irritate people like you and I who really want to celebrate these stars and talk about them you know wholeheartedly and properly I mean you know it's interesting when I talk about memorialization and you know like in my paper I talked about all the different memorials that are around the world to Ava Gardner and it's so interesting I think one of the memorials to um Judy Garland, to Joan Crawford, to Barbara Streisand, who's still alive. Mm. You know, there are many kind of drag interpretations. These are like almost separate characters. And I kind of, I, you know, I find drag culture fascinating and, and very kind of um, affirmative and a wonderful. Um, the, the risk of any parody is that you tip into something cruel. Like, mm. it's the risk. Every joke has got a risk, I feel like, you know, and that's the risk with parody, which is what drag is, that it can become something... Um, become something that's not kind yes. and and the and i think it's kind of lovely you know i love turning on rupaul's drag race and seeing them all acting out imagining if they were these classic era hollywood stars that lots of people don't even care about and these people care about the nuances of their performance and their, their vocal patterns and their wigs and so on but yeah if you take it if you take it out of the context of the sort of love with it it's meant to be expressing you, you do get down to sort of redu reducing people. Yes. And, you know, I think that someone like Joan Crawford or Judy Garland or any number of people are so much more fascinating than one kind of, what's the word, like this image of people when they're on their last legs. I mean, I really loved the film Judy, actually. A lot of people didn't. I thought it was wonderful because I thought it sort of showed you both sides. Um, I just thought it was a very heartfelt film, but you can see why people worry when they think why would you make a film about her when she's falling right when you make a film about when she's soaring right yeah well i, I really liked the um judy davis one the the miniseries yeah. um that sort of had both aspects i guess of her well the whole the whole life was covered then the young girl that played her as a young 
as young Judy was superb, really, really good. Um, and I feel for these people who can do that really well because where else do they move on with their careers? Because <laughs> <laughs> they could nail Judy Garland, but who are you? Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, that that's a really interesting point. The whole idea of the orbits basically being about an image of them at their peak, like healthy and strong and in charge. But then, you know, obviously giving the whole detailing of, you know, even the sort of salacious dark stuff, which is, that's really interesting. That's amazing. Is that a journalistic sort of, you know, integral thing to do, like a, a thing that you guys do? I mean, I mean, obituary writing is such a fascinating field. And obituary yeah, journalism, so you know, strange. I loved working on the image desk. There are sort of, there are kind of rules or, got, or unofficial rules to it. And I think one of those is that you, 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 I'll pay tribute. You're capturing someone at their best. Obituaries are respectful, but they're honest. Mm. Amazing. And I know, I know. It's a weird little sidetrack. I mean, if we all bring odd little things into our work, and, you know, I used to work on the obituaries desk, and so I suppose maybe that's why I'm interested in telling life stories and memorialising people. Um, but also, it informs how I think about that act, you know? Everything does, you know? Um and I think that the way we're dealing with this kind of thing is changing. And I'd be interested to know, you know, I'd be interested to go and talk to my obituary friends about it. But I think, you know, respectful and honest is still a good way to go. Absolutely. Let's close on something I want to ask you in, in this regard. What is your stance at the current bloody Oscars in memoriam? <laughs> because I, I recall in the, I feel like the best period for the Oscars were the late, late 80s and early 90s. Um, where they'd have like the on-stage presentation of honouring a classic star. I mean, if you if you see Glenn Close honouring um, Deborah Carr, it's just stunning. It's divine. Um, there's really beautiful writing as well. There, she says, you know, to the woman who played, you know, um, a, a mother to troubled teenagers, a governess to haunted children, and you know, someone to men who refuse to grow up. So she's you know listing teen sympathy and the innocence and King and I in one go. And there's you know there's those tributes and montages to genre and all that that stuff was happening in the late 80s, early 90s. And then by the late 90s, early 2000s, it sort of stopped. It became kind of just, you know, get them on, get them off, blah, blah, blah. Who the fuck are these people? I don't know who you are uh, on the screen. But then they have the in memoriam thing and that changed as well. They went from really respectful, um, in-depth and also, you know, um, uh, clips rather than just stills and no stupid friggin' musician playing over it. It was just a score. It was lovely. <laughs> so what's your stance there on the, on, on the In Memoriam on the Oscars? Do you know, I just, while you were saying that beautiful quote from Glenn Close, I've got Deborah Carr on my office wall staring at me looking beautiful. I've got a poster of her. So <laughs> she, she was looking at me all the time I was uh, listening to you say that. <laughs> and, you know, I live in London. Um, I don't really watch the Oscars. Right. I mean, it's not it's not really on my radar. I, I used to as part of work um, when I worked on the news desk. I would stay up all night and watch them. I think it's interesting now with the in memoriam, the thing that people are waiting for is who's been missed. Yes. And as you say, it's quite perfunctory and text-based. Name, 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 name. And I've had people turn around to me on the news desk and say, did they miss anyone? And I'd be like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and then it becomes a bit of a slam dunk. You know, you know, you could, might have listed fifty names, and we say, "Oh, but you missed out." Was it was it Mickey Rooney they missed out on? Yeah, was someone quite? There's been a couple of big ones, and you know, it's it's difficult if you haven't got anything to say about people. It's not that interesting just to list their names. 
I think that one of the things that I always find quite interesting, you know, as a child, bring it back to like seeing little packages on the news about little English or something, seeing these little tributes and thinking, wow, there's a lot there. I want to go back and watch all those films. Mm. And uh, if it becomes perfunctory, then it almost feels like it's dutiful and it's just a list, you know? Um, right. That makes well, another journalistic thing is not to just list names of films when you're writing about someone because unless you've got something to say about them, they're just cluttering up your paragraph. That's um, right. <laughs> exactly. It's a laundry <laughs> list. There were really good documentary. Uh, there was a Fox Searchlight did a really good series in the nineties. Um, you'd catch them on television. They aired here like really sporadically. They'd be on like Channel Seven Network either early in the morning or late at night. And they were an hour long and they were in-depth sort of biographies on people and they were wonderful. They were beautiful. Um, um, Kevin Burns was the producer, but they were really in-depth and they'd cover a whole range of things um, in and outside of film work. But, you know, it, it would range from Hedy Lamar to Lon Chaney to whoever. And you'd catch them and you'd be like, these are amazing. They need to be on disc. But they, were, they weren't fluffy. They had, like, um, historians, people who knew the stars, and they were really, like, you know, beautifully made. Um, and it was really cool. It wasn't just sort of fluff. It was like a, a nice package. And they went for an hour, long, you know, an hour um, each, an episode. Um, so they were really cool. Um, I don't know if you've caught them ever, but they're really, they're really good to source and see because they're nice little packages that, you know, pretty much read like a, a feature, a featurette on a DVD now. But, yeah, really cool stuff. I do remember... Um there was a art strand on the BBC uh, called Arena, and in the early 80s, they did a piece on Louise Brooks. And, I mean, I know this as a fact, but also I remember seeing it when I was a little kid. I think it came on, like, something that my parents had taped off the TV. It came on, either in the middle or just the very beginning of it came on. And I was entranced as a little girl. I remember it deeply because I didn't quite understand what the voiceover was saying. And I just saw this little, this person who looked to me like Betty Boop, who I loved, quite rightly, um, and it said something about her going to Berlin, that she was American, she went to Berlin, and then it sort of suggested that she got lost. And I remember just thinking, oh, no, she got lost in Berlin. It sounds awful. <laughs> you know, very naive infant's eye view of what Louise Brooks was. And then, you know, that sort of memory that sort of floats back when I'm writing about her so much these days. It's, you know, um, but just an image and a couple of lines was enough to kind of grab my attention about her. Um, and now I know people who want to tell different stories about her. Um, but to me, I think, you know, you have to take the whole woman. Fascinating, difficult, brilliant, terrible. Yep, <laughs> absolutely. And just to close, actually, this is a double close, but you, um, I mean, you mentioned, obviously, uh, or one of us mentioned the fantastic Alice Roberts and her, um, you know, contribution and uh, in Pandora's box and what she represents. And I noticed in one of your bios, you're doing a bit of research in lesbian representation in silent cinema. Now, that's really fascinating because I can think of a few like things like um, Florida Enchantment. It's an interesting topic. I mean, basically, you know, the story that Louise Brooks tells about Pandora's Box is that Alice Roberts didn't realise she was meant to be playing a lesbian, didn't mm -hmm. want to play a lesbian, refused to sort of act out the sort of passionate scenes. And it's a good story, but actually if you watch the film, it doesn't really happen hang together right it doesn't make sense what she's saying and i've seen alice roberts in other silent films and her performance in pandora's box is far better i do think that she is acting the role i think she's giving a great performance i think we've undermined it because we've had this anecdotal evidence from louise brooks and you know one of the things is you know that character was in the play and that play had been being for 
being performed for more than a decade, you know. So people knew about this. And I just think about the fact that that film came out in early 1929 at a time when there was a sort of sort of rush of, for better word, you know, uh, lesbian representation in theatre, mm-hmm. in novels, and and even in films. There'd been, you know, you know, it's always this thing where people say no one knew about lesbianism, and then it propped up in Pandora's box, and then it didn't come again until you know this nineteen sixties or the children's hour or right. whatever. But you know, it's it's not completely absent, and I really wanted to go, and I still will write this paper. You know, go back on that point and say this is what led to that characterization it's not a one-off it's not a straight actress making eyes at the director behind the camera i mean i think she was a straight actress but she is playing a famous lesbian character one of many famous lesbian characters yeah. at the time yeah. and it wasn't it doesn't just come from a position of ignorance no absolutely not and um, you're right, it's, it's, it, there's a wave of them. The Well of Loneliness, I think, was released mm-hmm. around that time. There was a whole bunch of stuff that was happening at that period. And also, the fact of the matter, pre, say, you know, the Hayes Code, you have a lot of, you know, queer characters or queerly read characters. And, and they're fun. They're fantastic to watch. I love the, the early lesbian sort of predatory kind of, you know, bisexual or, you know... Um, kind of uh, sexy sort of um, urbane women that sort of peppered the screen and then they sort of transitioned, of course, and became, you know, treacherous or tragic. So I I just love that. That's a really fascinating period as well, that sort of just before sort of the mid the early 1933s of that period. But um, that's really fascinating. I hope you you do work on that a lot more because I'd love to, yeah, read up on that from your perspective. It would be amazing. I mean, in, in, in a way, you know, as you say, the examples are all there and quite obvious. It's just a matter of just looking at the text maybe with a little bit more respect. I think we're so, when uh, the older a film gets, the more we get settled in the stories that we tell about it. And sometimes, you know, they might be right, but sometimes you just need to shake it up a little bit and say, well, what if that wasn't true about that film? What if this is a landmark and lesbian representation or just a notable occasion of lesbian representation you know what if there's more to this film than we've been saying all along and not much more just just a fact just a fact that people who made films in berlin would have been aware of yeah <laughs> that's right absolutely yeah. and and also um you know the stuff that was sort of based on theatrical works that were very queer and the, and the sort of stuff was you know the subtext or, the, or even the text was sort of omitted or whatever but it's still there it's still it's still embedded within the fabric of it and people aren't seeing it um I mean, that... look at morocco yeah marlena dietrich did not invent that in hollywood you know that's right <laughs> exactly and the spiegel tent lives here now which is really interesting in melbourne oh. so yeah 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 it's here i've been a few times but uh, yeah so there you go you've got we've got a bit of marlena here in melbourne I mean, Marlene, you is another obsession, but, we, you know, let's let's get on. <laughs> let's do that another day. Yes, okay. <laughs> Lovely to chat to you, Pamela. It's been an honour. It's been so much fun. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me on, and I hope you have, a, well, a very good night's sleep because it's quite late where you are. Yes, <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> Thank you so much. grip on yourself, you're going to die. Stephen Haynes is stepping out on Mary. 
But Sylvia, who told you? A manicurist? What? What girl? This Crystal Allen. Crystal Allen? Yes, you know, the girl who's hooked Mr. Haynes. Hey, what happened to the hot day you had on for tonight, darling? It's hotter than ever, dear. I'm having him dine at my place. About time he found out I was a home girl. Home girl? <laughs> Get her. Why don't you borrow the quintuplets for the evening? Because I'm all the baby he wants, pet. Now's your chance to go in there and put an end to this thing, Mary. Go in there and just say a few quiet words. Tell her you'll make Stephen's life an absolute tornado till he gives her up. Look where she was six months ago, and look where she is now. Sylvia, will you please let me do what I want with my own life? You're very confident, aren't you? Yes, because I know Stephen couldn't love a girl like you. Well, if he couldn't, he's an awfully good actor. <laughs> Cheer up, Sherry. Wait, you've lost as many husbands as I have. Married, divorced, married, divorced. Oh. L'amour, l'amour. That's French for love. You should have licked that girl where she licked you. In his arms. It's where you win in the first round, and if I know men, it's still Custer's last stand. <laughs> Claws, Mother. Jungle Red! Say, who are you to laugh, my pet? I've made good with my husband. Is that the way to talk to me after all I've done for you? Oh, done what? You didn't know a soul when you married Stephen. After all, it wasn't easy to put you over. Stephen's fed up with the crystal in your heart, you know it. Yes, take my advice, because you put your mind on your alimony. Alimony? With what Stephen can get on you, he won't have to give you a dime. Oh. 